0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Coming up, my conversation with Conservative leadership candidate and Parry Sound Muskoka Member of Parliament Scott Aitchison in the Conservative Leadership Series. The Andrew
0: Lawton Show starts right now.
1: Greetings, one and all. Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show here on True North. The Andrew Lawton Show, and another special edition of the program as we continue the Conservative Leadership Series, which I've said now a couple of times, uncreatively describes our series of conversations with Conservative Leadership Candidates. I should have called it the Conservative Leadership Conversation Series, just to really drive home exactly what this is. But we did it in 2020. We weren't really around in 2017, but we would have done it then if we were around And it would have taken a lot longer because there were like uh, 87 candidates seeking the conservative leadership that time around. But we're going around talking to the candidates about what it is they want to do as leader of the conservatives, how they plan to get there, how they'll win an election after that, and if they become prime minister, what they would do in this country. But the whole point of this series is that we're trying to talk to the candidates about things that conservative Canadians actually care about. So much of the mainstream media filter on covering conservative politics is about what the media cares about. So you get a billion questions on abortion and systemic racism and none on things like taxes and budgets and social conservatism and electability and all of these other things that really are weighing on people in some form or another as they decide who they want to support in the leadership race. We've had a bunch of these interviews so far and today I want to introduce the next one here which is my interview with Perry Sound Muskoka Member of Parliament Scott Aitchison who came into this with less name recognition than some of the other candidates but he was still able to get the signatures, raise the money and he's been running a very policy-driven campaign. He's had a lot of announcements that have come out. Some have been on fairly conventional conservative issues but others have been on bolder things such as wanting to end supply management and wanting to recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign nation, so putting an end to Canada's one-China foreign policy when it comes to China and Taiwan. These are, are certainly things that have resonated with our members, and we wanted to go into a bit more depth about them with Scott Aitchison. So this is my Conservative Leadership Series interview with Member of Parliament Scott Aitchison. Very Sound Muskoka MP Scott Aitchison. Mr. Aitchison, good to talk to you again.
0: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me again, Andrew.
1: Now, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here to say that when you entered this race, you were not coming in with as much name recognition as some of your competitors in it. At the same time, you have experienced federal and municipal politics, two-term MP. Uh, start with an easy one. How do you think the race is going so far?
0: I think it's going really well. Uh, I'm really very, very proud of what the, the campaign is doing, what my team is doing. Uh, we're very focused on policy. Uh, we're spreading that word around the country and uh, it's resonating. We're more and more conservatives are hearing that message and, uh, and they're pleased with what they hear. very focused on policy.
1: What would you say if you could distill it down into a simple message your campaign is about?
0: It's about making life more affordable for Canadians. That's the biggest challenge that I'm hearing about every single day, whether it's putting food on the table, whether it's putting fuel in your car to get to work, particularly the Canadians that live in rural parts of the country, Uh, whether it's trying to find a place to rent or buy your first home. Uh, It's a crisis in this country. Affordability is a huge problem and that's why I've been focused very much on presenting solutions to the problems that Canadians face every single day not calling other candidates names but it's why I think it's important for us to you know actually deliver a real plan to solve the housing crisis as opposed to just promising billions of dollars like the liberals do as opposed to you know sticking up for a failed policy like supply management that uh, makes groceries more expensive, expensive and and ultimately limits our farmers ability to sell their products around the world i'm talking about conservative principles that actually will help canadians uh, and make life more affordable for them uh, and i think that Canadians are ready to hear that, certainly Conservatives are ready to hear that and that's why I keep talking about it.
1: The the Conservative talking point on affordability has often just been about taxes, lower taxes. Now you've touched on there a number of things that, that aren't taxes per se that are still driving up the cost of living. And I find it interesting how much a lot of the media, and I'd say a lot of politicians as well, focus on the numbers like the inflation rate and and all that, where Canadians have been seeing this problem long before the experts did. When the Bank of Canada governor was saying this was all just transitory, Canadians were looking at their grocery store bill and their gas bill and saying that this isn't transitory to me. What is the solution that is within the purview of the federal government to deal with inflation? Well, and, and this is the crux of the, of the issue here, right? We're supposed to, as
0: politicians, talk in speaking points and little taglines and stuff, and that's not solutions. There is no magic bullet. There is no waving of a magic wand that can solve this problem. It's not transitory. It's not unique to Canada. It's a global issue. Uh, and so there are lots of little things. This is, this is one of those areas where, you know, just standing up and saying, you know, some kind of a slogan doesn't actually solve the problem, so there, there's no question that a big part of this is looking at all kinds of government policies, whether it's supply management, whether it's the carbon tax, whether it's a, uh, some relief on, uh, on fuel with the HSD being removed for a certain amount of time. These are some of the things that our, our team has proposed in Ottawa, and of course the Liberals have ignored it, but we need to be focused on all kinds of different things that we can be doing that produce results. We can't be worried about the sacred cows of you know, the, 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 the political things, minefields that we avoid. Canadians need results. It also includes making sure that the federal government stops spending money that they don't need to spend. They, they, you know, Christian Freeland told us that they needed to stimulate the economy. We all know. That the economy is firing on all cylinders, inflation's out of control, we can't get enough people to fill jobs right now, we don't need to be, we don't need to be stimulating the economy. And so now we're borrowing even more money after two years, two and a half years of, of excessive borrowing uh, that's only exacerbated pro- the problem. It's not the only part of the problem, but it's exacerbating it. And so w- we need reasonable leadership in Ottawa that is looking at all the different policy uh, items that we can look at. Uh, because it's going to take, uh, you know, pushing uh, all the levers and pulling, you know, pushing all the buttons and pulling all the levers. There's there's not one single solution.
1: Let's talk about supply management for a moment because this is an issue where demonstrably Canadians are paying more for dairy products and Conservatives who oftentimes speak about the importance of the free market have also traditionally had this as a very significant blind spot for them, and, and you and I spoke about it a little bit before, so I, I'll just encourage people to watch that conversation before rehashing all of it, but uh, the one thing I will bring bring up is that a transition away from supply management, there have been estimates to say this could be tens of billions of dollars, so how do you transition away with, without causing more pain when, I, as you've noted, government coffers are already uh, pretty bare without relying on heavy debt? Right. Well, I, I, as, I mean, we call it a transition because it will take some time. But for me, it will start
0: with a consultation and a discussion with, with farmers about how we How we transition away from this closed system to a system where they can compete and market their products around the world. We need to build new markets. Let's not kid ourselves. This is one of the reasons the provinces came together in the late 1870s and created a federal government. One of the primary roles was to create new markets around the world for Canadian products. of course, back then that was mostly agriculture. And so uh, to me, this is fundamentally what we should be doing. Uh, And so it's about about empowering and enriching farmers because we have some of the best farmers in the world. Uh, But by doing that and by creating competition and creating new markets for them, we will also make food cheaper for Canadian families that are struggling. Uh, And so I, I, I don't demonize farmers. I think that farmers have done a great job within a system that, you know, is really just this closed quota system. Uh, But but I think that if you're investing in helping build those new markets, um, it doesn't have to cost as much as it would cost to just simply buy out the quota.
1: Do do you think the dairy lobby is too powerful in Canadian politics or in conservative politics? Because that's often been the factor that's been blamed for not having any movement on this issue. Yeah, I I think the lobbyists in
0: Ottawa in general are too powerful. We we pay too much attention listening to these folks. I mean, I I think about I think about the fact that uh, you know we we've been trying to make progress on getting rural broadband solved in this country, Uh, and what you see is the lobbyists for the big corporations, you know, swooping in and scooping up whatever dollars they can get to pick off the lowest hanging fruit, and not really solve any problems, not really expand the network for people that live in rural areas. That desperately need rural broadband. This is part of our infrastructure as much as subways in Toronto or bridges on our highways. This is crucial, but the lobbyists, they're always there, they're always there. Uh, It's it's time for Ottawa politicians to, to, to ignore the lobbyists and start focusing on why they're there to solve problems for the people they represent.
1: Looking at where your party is right now, the the big frustration I've always had just personally with with conservative platforms is that I think they focus too much on on cost of living when that message hasn't always resonated. And I don't know if it's been because Canadians don't believe it. I don't know if it's been because uh, the media is is bogging down the debates and elections about other things. But do you think that affordability alone is enough to win an election? Because that seems like, from my point of view, the exact message that Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole ran on.
0: Well, I, I think affordability Uh, is is certainly more acute an issue today than it was during those last two elections that you refer to, Uh, but I think the other challenge that we have as Conservatives is we we need to come together as a movement and as a caucus, and until until we can get along amongst ourselves, until we can build that unity amongst ourselves, then Canadians are not going to trust us, and the Liberals, I guarantee you, will play upon the divisions that exist within our within our movement to tell People in places like the GTA where we need to win seats if we're going to form government, where they'll tell people in the lower mainland of BC where we need to win seats if we're going to win government, they'll say you can't trust them. And so we need to have a principled, consistent message and deliver it in a tone that doesn't scare people. I think, I think too many people in those areas where we need to win seats see us as angry old white guys and we play that role all too well. The only way we can get past this is by speaking to the issues that matter to Canadians, and I guarantee you affordability is absolutely top of the list right now, especially now. Uh, But it's also about speaking to the other issues that matter to people and speaking about those issues in a way that doesn't scare them. You know, I I think it's important to defend the rights of firearms owners. I represent a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, I don't think people that live in cities who are afraid of gun violence are stupid. They have every right to be afraid, and they deserve results from their federal government. And so just banning another series of you know, legal firearms in this country isn't gonna solve that problem. So we've gotta, we've gotta stop letting the Liberals pander to people, not solve problems, and then try to make us look bad for defending the rights of law-abiding firearms owners. We need to present real solutions to the problems that we face, not just in the rural parts of this country, but in the urban parts of this country. We need to stop dividing Canadians. We need to bring them together. That's a message that I'm delivering.
1: Does the May 2020 Order in Council go away if you're Prime Minister?
0: Absolutely it will. Uh, and we, need, we need to take the politics out of firearms classification. There are experts out there. This is, this is oftentimes what you see happening, right, where you get politicians involved who are interested in buying votes. Mm. not actually interested in solving problems we want to solve a problem we want to actually have credible plan and a credible system for classifying firearms that doesn't include politics you need to have a panel of experts I think that's the way we do it and I think we take the the, the politicians completely out of this and the politicians can focus on actually solving the problem which is stopping the flow of illegal firearms being smuggled across our the US border uh, and then the much deeper broader problem is solving the issue that that we see in inner cities and 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 communities that are impoverished where young people see their only hope for their future to join a gang. Our society has failed those kids and our cities are afraid as a result of it. It's going to take a lot more work but that's where the work has to happen.
1: I know the the Stephen Harper government did something very bold in in reducing the GST by by two percentage points, which was quite significant, although quite long ago. I don't think I can recall any particular bold policy on taxes, just as, as one example, in the last two elections from the Conservatives. I mean, certainly we've heard the general discussion about wanting lower taxes. What would you bring to the table that would be bold, that would dramatically alter the tax situation, either for Canadians or Canadian small business?
0: Well, I've talked a lot about eliminating the carbon tax as, uh, as, as, as one important step forward. Uh, but I've also talked a lot about, you know, simplifying our tax code. I think I did a video and I held up these 3,000 pages of tax code. It's ridiculous. Uh, Canadians should pay tax based on what they earn, not how good their accountants are. And, and we, need to, we need to simplify that system. We need to, we need to clean it up. Uh, and honestly, by doing that, we can save Canadians something like $6 billion a year that they spend on preparing their tax returns. That's an insane expense. Uh, it, it shouldn't exist. So I've talked a little about simplifying the tax code, reducing taxes uh, in a responsible way. Once we get the books balanced, then every dollar of, uh, of, you know, of, of revenue we can, we can divide between lowering taxes and reducing the debt. We need to, we need to clean up the fiscal mess that, uh, the, that the Liberal government has left us. We're over 1.2 trillion in debt now. Uh, there's still deficit spending when there's no need for it. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. but tax relief is going to be a big part of actually stimulating more revenue for the government too. So we need to we need to we need to clean it up uh, and simplifying our tax code, reducing taxes uh, uh, you know in in various different areas, chief among them the carbon tax. We need to make life more affordable for Canadians and that'll be good for our federal balance sheet as well.
1: You're coming out in our conversation now and in your campaign with some policy ideas that I think a conservative government could definitely build a strong coalition on, a conservative party could definitely run on, things like uh, your Taiwan policy, which we've talked about previously, ending supply management, lowering taxes, uh, repealing some of the liberal gun measures, and, and so on. Why do you think, if I can be perfectly blunt here, that in polls that have been done of leadership candidates, you're not ranking higher in this race? If those aren't enough to command a a large chunk of Conservative members, at least at this stage, what is? Well, I'll say this. I think that the polling in this kind of a race
0: is a difficult thing to do. I don't think they're very accurate uh, to begin with. There's no question. You mentioned at the very outset that uh, I'm not as well known a candidate, wasn't as well known a candidate, but it's building. It's growing. More and more people are coming out to our events. Uh, We're getting, you know, certainly a bigger following all the time on social media. Uh, The message is resonating and it it is building. Um, You know, a couple of other candidates have been doing this a lot longer than I have. Um, When people hear positive, respectful presentation of real plans, real solutions to problems that Canadians face every single day, that resonates. It's building and it continues to build and I'm confident that uh, as we continue this race we're going to go all the way to the end talking about issues, talking about solutions, and it's going to build.
1: But do you feel your party gets too bogged down in in culture war issues and factionalism so much so that they aren't paying attention to policy?
0: Well, I I, I think that Canadians get bogged down in that, not just our party, but Canadians get bogged down in it because that's all all that politicians have put on. But
1: your your party's not immune from No,
0: it's not immune to it, and and none of us are. But this is part part of the challenge of of our politics in general today. Uh, And I've said this many times too. I, I think the first time I said something really publicly about it was during my my speech in response to the Emergency Measures Act, that our politics are about, are this zero-sum game about winning at all costs, at, at any cost, uh, and we and we, we, we demonize each other. We demonize different parts of the country to win votes in different areas, uh, and, it, and it is a culture war. We only have to look south of the border to see the results of that. We don't want to go that direction, and that's why it's important for us to focus on policies. Why I keep doing what I'm doing, I know that we can demonstrate real leadership by demonstrating real leadership and presenting solutions.
1: Obviously, the convoy has sucked up a lot of oxygen in this leadership race and, and vaccine mandates in general, and, and again, I know that you've you voted for the Conservative motion to, to call on the government to end mandates. Now this has been revived, though, because coming up on Canada Day, you've got a lot of people that were involved in the original convoy there wanting to stage another demonstration, what's your view on how a conservative party, either in opposition or in government, could re-engage people that feel on this issue specifically like the government just is not for them?
0: Well, I mean, there's no question that this current Liberal government is arrogant and aloof and ignores big swaths of our country that don't agree with them. Then I think it's important for. Do you consumers. mean in
1: general or just on the vaccination?
0: In general, but vaccinations is probably the most recent example and the one you've given now. Uh, there's no, there's no question about that. We need to be, we need to be an engaged party. We need to be listening. Uh, we need to be presenting solutions. Just fanning the flames of the anger doesn't actually solve anything. It doesn't. It, it just doesn't. We need to be presenting solutions, and that's why I take the approach of, of presenting solutions. That's why I'm proud of what our team has been doing in Ottawa. Well, the leadership candidates have been, you know, crisscrossing the country. Our team has been very focused uh, and, and, and very focused on the message of eliminating these mandates because they are political now. There's no question about that. Canada is like far behind other nations in terms of removing things like mask mandates and vaccine mandates all over the place. It's time to move on. Uh, But but this Liberal government sees it as a political tool uh, and it's dividing Canadians even further. That's their trick. They try to divide Canadians. And so I I guarantee you no one would be more more happy than uh, than the Liberals to see a convoy-like thing happen again because they see it as an opportunity to paint one group of Canadians as bad to win over another group of Canadians. It's disgusting. It's wrong. And we need to be careful as Conservatives not to play into that and play into that fear. We need to bring Canadians together.
1: But when you say, you know, you want to fight against the mandates, this was a sentiment that was growing in Canadians in the last election. I mean, we saw the People's Party of Canada and some strong Conservative ridings get 14, 15% of the vote. And the Conservatives were basically silent on this at that time, certainly from the leadership. So where were you on that around the time in in the fall? And and when did your position really come to where it is now that you think the mandates need to end? Yeah, well, my, my position on this has always
0: been that I trust my doctor. I trusted my doctor when he told me I needed heart surgery. I trusted my doctor when he said, you know, this COVID thing is real and these vaccinations will help. There are people out there that don't agree with that. But do
1: you trust the government's doctor?
0: I, I I, I trust. I certainly did trust the advice that we were getting. Here's the other thing too. But until when? This much, this much I do know. This much I do know. With freedom comes responsibilities. And and I think our freedom is absolutely sacrosanct to our way of life here, but we also have responsibility to our neighbor. And at the beginning of this pandemic, we didn't really understand it. We didn't really know the impacts. We didn't know how big it could get. There was a lot of fear. Uh, And and frankly, one of the biggest fears we had was the provinces were worried about our healthcare system literally collapsing under the weight of this thing. And so, yeah, there were lockdowns. Let's not kid ourselves. The lockdowns were implemented by provinces, Mm -hmm. not the federal government. But part of the reason for that was because we basically have created a healthcare system in part with a promise from a federal government back in the 60s to pay 50% of the cost that they've never lived up to. It's no wonder our healthcare system is failing because the federal government just keeps trying to buy votes by meddling in provincial affairs everywhere and never living up to the original promise. If we had done that all along, our healthcare system would be robust. It would have been stronger. We wouldn't have had to have as many lockdowns. We need to make sure we learn the lessons of what happened over COVID. But also remember, I hated wearing a mask. But if I felt like that was the responsible thing to do to make my neighbor feel safe, then I was prepared to do that a little bit longer. And so we need to, we need to care for each other as well. So freedoms are important. We are free. We need to make sure that we care for each other and our responsibilities matter as much as our freedoms. So I, I absolutely supported what my doctor, what Teresa Tam was telling us we should be doing, what the provincial medical officers of health were telling us as well, but we're now past it. The pandemic is over. And so any any existing mandates, any continuing rules about masks are ridiculous and political and they need to end.
1: So when did it change then? And I, I guess I, I, I'm not asking you to well, I guess tell it, me the time and date, yeah, but, no, but the I, government's doctors are still saying that some of these mandates should be in place. So when did you start feeling like they were no longer justified and that advice was not accurate. I
0: think I think what I look at is I look at, at at the full spectrum. What the provinces have done, what other countries are doing and have done. Uh, I, I, you know we're way behind all these other countries. Uh, mm-hmm. We we don't we don't exist on an island here in this country. We are partners all around the world. And and why are we so far behind? Uh, my, I, it didn't happen in a specific instant, but it evolves like so many things. Um, everybody else is way ahead of us. Why are we still Why are we still playing these games? It's because it's political. And so, for me, we knew it was going to take some time and it has gradually happened. It's become endemic, I guess. Uh, and so now that, that is, that's the case, then it's time for
1: us to move on. We've heard from some of your competitors in this race. Uh, you know, Pierre Polyev says, fire Tiff Macklem, the Bank of Canada governor. Roman Babber has said, fire Teresa Tam. I mean, these things are, are slogans by definition, but I think they're speaking to the fact that there there is this contingent, certainly in this leadership race and probably in the, the Conservative membership, that thinks some of these people bear responsibility for decisions that have been taking place. Is that an approach that you take, that there, there needs to be a change in some of these senior bureaucratic positions.
0: My approach is always to lead um, with ideas and, and and by example. Frankly, as I've said many times, you know, demonizing one group of Canadians over another, demonizing each other politically, or demonizing bureaucrats to try to win votes is not the right approach. My approach is to is to is to lead by example and lead with ideas. Uh, I, I think that saying things like you know firing Tiff Macklem. Uh, you know certainly uh, you know elicited a lot of excitement, maybe it was great for fundraising numbers but the but the, but, but the markets don 't like that kind of instability uh, and 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 to suggest that the Bank of Canada has dramatically failed us because they missed the last two targets in the in the in the wake of a global pandemic and an inflationary cycle that 's affecting the entire world is very irresponsible there 's a system in place to review the mandate of the Bank of Canada and it Maybe it needs to be more public, more transparent, but we need to use those systems to make sure that, that the institutions that Conservatives have traditionally stood for to make better peace, order, and good government. This is what Conservatives need to be about. Uh, we need to work to make sure that these, these institutions are always working to the benefit of Canadians. But there's a way to do that without calling for the firing of this person or demonizing that person or anything else. That's what Conservatives do.
1: Let's talk about the Bank of Canada for a moment, specifically to bring it around to something you mentioned earlier and was one of your earliest policies in the race, I think, housing. The housing situation for a lot of young families, you know, everyone knows, is is absolutely untenable, certainly in places like Toronto and, and Vancouver. Uh, we now have uh, projections of significant rate hikes within the next five years to rein in inflation, to raise the cost of borrowing, which further challenges the ability for people to afford a a home. Even if they get the down payment, they can't afford the mortgage interest rate at this point. So how does your vision of wanting more supply, more houses, which will will certainly bring down the price a bit, how does that help people if all of a sudden the cost of a mortgage is just going to be skyrocketing, over the next five years?
0: Well, it, it, there's no question that that's going to have an impact, but my, my plan on housing actually comes, comes from a lot of years of experience on the ground, the municipal level, in the real estate world, uh, and understanding the process. We, we My YIMBY plan, which is, yes, in my backyard, actually will deliver results and, and actually get more units built by working with the municipalities and the provincial governments uh, to tie federal funding to results. Right now, it takes way too long to get a rezoning done uh, for something fairly simple in mean, any of any of the larger centers. Uh, it can take up to two or three years to rezone, you know, a single-family dwelling to a duplex. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I mean, you're not affecting. You're certainly not affecting the character. So we need to speed up those processes. We need to make it faster, frankly. Uh, and and I have the ability to get that done. I know how to do it. I know how to build those relationships. And so it's a real plan. You know, mortgages. Yes, we'll probably become a little bit more expensive, but it's also slowing down the housing market just a little bit as well. So what you'll see is maybe prices start to come down. If we actually get supply into the market, uh, plus rates creeping up a little bit more, it will actually slow down that market and actually make it more accessible overall. Mortgages might be a little bit more, but prices might come down just a little bit. And so we'll find that balance. Uh, and again, you know, the, the federal government is responsible to work with all levels of government, work with the Bank of Canada to make sure that you know, we're focused on making life more affordable. There is absolutely no reason why in this country, one of the richest countries in the history of the world, why everybody doesn't have access to a home. If we commit to solving that problem, we can do it, we just got to focus on it.
1: What's your message to the baby boomer that plans to retire in five, 10, 15 years, maybe downsize? They're sitting on their house as being their most valuable asset, and they're hearing you say, home prices should go down.
0: I think home prices will come down a little bit. I didn't say they're going to drop. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind. I'll give, you, know, you can give all kinds of examples where you know, people's homes have, have like, tripled in price. If it comes down just a little bit, you're still doing very well. You've still got your nest egg there for your retirement. I don't see the market doing that. Uh, and i don 't think that the federal government should be engaged in any policy that that actually drops the, 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 you know, the, the market out of the, 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 the bottom out of the market in the housing market that 's not what i 'm saying at all you 're going to see some corrections uh, it 'll balance things out and the federal government needs to focus on supply, which will help that balance a little bit further.
1: So Trudeau has the two billion trees, you've got the two billion houses, or whatever the he uh, hasn't even plant, whatever the number is. He
0: hasn't even planted the trees. <laughs> he hasn't even done that. Yeah, if you build
1: one house, I think you've uh, built more houses than yeah, exactly. Trudeau has, has exactly. planted exactly. And trees. plant two trees. I've yeah. already done more than him, too. I wanted to turn to another issue since we are talking about you know a lot of issues connected to, to young people and, and their future. Uh, the labour shortage is transcending sectors. I mean, I, I had a story I could share a, a couple of months back where I was at a hotel and the the executive chef of the hotel was working the Starbucks counter because they yeah. didn't have a, a barista that morning at, at the Starbucks. And, and everywhere, whether it's airlines, rail services, restaurants, stores, they're all dealing with a shortage in labor. First off, where are all these people in, in your view? And, and more importantly, how do you bring them back? Yeah. yeah, it's a good, it's a really,
0: it's a crucial issue and it's not just in any particular industry or part of the country, it's everywhere and it's and it's been caused by a number of factors. Obviously not the least of which is there's a lot of an awful lot of people that were probably planning on leaving the employment market <laughs> over the next five to ten years that said, All right I'm out. Yeah. COVID accelerated. I'm leaving early. Right? So there's a demographic thing that's certainly happening there. Uh, I'm leaving early and and they've done that. Um, There's also the issue, of course, at the beginning of the pandemic where immigration numbers dropped dramatically. We need more Canadians. We need more people in this country and we need an immigration system that actually serves the needs of of not just immigrants, but but all Canadians. We need to be focused on the skills that we need in this country. There are short 200,000 skilled tradespeople right now. And so we need to be focusing on that, we need to beef up those numbers. Um, and, and then I think as well, you need to, you know, uh, we need to make sure that work is always rewarding. You know, I, I've talked also about raising the basic personal exemption so that it actually makes more sense to work than to stay at home uh, and collect support payments. Uh, we need to make it more rewarding as well uh, to make sure that, you know, entry level jobs, for example, get filled and that, and that service related jobs, uh, are not just a dead end. You're not sort of falling behind every month. So there's, there's a lot of things that we need to be doing. Uh, it's not, a, again, one of these issues where it's not just a magic bullet. There's no simple solution to it. There's a lot of different things we need to be doing, uh, but we need to be focused on that, making sure that we're making sure that Canadians have the skills they need to to, to have meaningful work.
1: I know CERB was ostensibly a response to provincial governments telling people that they couldn't work, so there had to be some benefit there. But do you think that the federal benefits exacerbated this problem? And, and do you think that anything could have been done differently and, and would have been if you were prime minister? Yeah,
0: I think I, and again, this is one of those areas where, you know, certainly at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, we were as conservative proposing a lot of really like practical uh, alterations to some of the programs that the federal government was offering. I would say that um, if they'd listened to us in some of those areas, that wouldn't have been as bad. I think that it was a little too much. It was too sloppy. Uh, again, I, I acknowledge that there was some fear there, but uh, but it was in many ways too much and in many ways not enough, depending on the sector. Um, it, it went on probably a little longer than it should as well. Uh, now you see all kinds of people. Getting notices that they've got to pay it back. Now they're frustrated by that. So, you know, I I would have made sure that it was a more collaborative approach uh, with all parties at the table, uh, as opposed to just uh, you know the liberal plan, which was to you know print as much money and just sprinkle it with across the country. Of course, it exacerbated the problem in terms of supply chains as well. Right, all of a sudden people are home and they have extra money in their jeans. Uh, but there's nobody making the products that they want to buy. And so now you've got this, this hiccup in our supply chains that's just also driving inflation and making things more difficult. And
1: so it, you know, it's a lingering problem that's going to continue for a while yet. Could you see yourself, if you're not successful in this leadership race, working with anyone else in your race or with everyone else in your, in your race?
0: Well, let me let me say this. I, success is measured in a lot of different ways. There's, uh, you know, I, I'm as I say very focused on uh, on being very vocal and positive through the very final moments of this campaign. Uh, and I I believe that the campaign is already a success. It's already a success because of the things we're talking about, the ideas we're talking about. Every time I go back to Ottawa and talk to my caucus colleagues, who maybe even have endorsed somebody else. They all tell me that they're proud of me and thank me for what I'm doing and how I'm doing this and the respectful way we're doing it. So I, I believe it is a success already uh, and I'm a team player. You, you, can't, you can't sort of sit here and preach the importance of the team and then not work with the team uh, when it's all over. I will always be a team player and I will always do my level best to bring the team together because that's what leaders do whether they hold the title or not. I'm a leader. Scott Acheson. Thank you. Thank you.
1: That was Perry Sound, Muskoka Member of Parliament, Scott Aitchison, sitting down one-on-one with yours truly as part of our Conservative Leadership Series. And as I've said in the previous installments of this series here, we're going around doing these interviews wherever we can, because oftentimes these candidates have very busy schedules and we're very grateful they've carved out some time to sit down with us and, and address some of these questions, especially in person. It was a bit easier in 2020 because at a certain point in the race, everyone had just switched to Zoom. So they couldn't say, oh, I can't do your interview. I'm in Yellowknife that day. It's like, well, they have an internet connect. Well actually, I don't even know how good the internet <laughs> is in in Yellowknife some days, but I digress. I'm gonna get some like high bandwidth yellow knife people that are very upset that I just made a crack. About your internet. In any case, if you are able to support this project and you find there's value in these conversations, please do head on over to donate.tnc.news. Donate.tnc.news, and you can chip a few dollars in to make sure we can see this through to the finish line. And with that, I will bid you a jeer for today, but Canada's most irreverent talk show continues in a couple days' time here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all.
0: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show.